So this is uh, Romans 6, 17-18. It says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. We're going to look at Luke chapter 18, verse uh, 27 next. This is Jesus speaking. It says, But He, that is Jesus, said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Romans 8.28, you have a grandma who loves Jesus, you've probably seen this on a pincushion or stitched onto a doily hanging in a frame on a wall. If you were raised in a Christian household with Christian parents, you probably had a really cheesy t-shirt with this on it when you were in junior high. This is Romans 8.28, it says, uh, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. All things work together for His purpose. For our good and His purpose. Let's go ahead now and jump into uh, the real meat of, of what we're looking at. John chapter 15, verse 11, or verse 1 through 11, rather, it says, this is again Jesus speaking. It says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So let's set the stage here. I'm the vine, my father's the vine dresser. Key players here, key elements of, of this whole picture, this whole, this whole analogy that, that Jesus is going to give us. It's important for, for me and for, for us to understand that, that it starts off where it ought to start off, focusing not on us, but on Jesus. Come on, somebody. So it says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Notice that's typically the, the verse, the passage, the, the, the piece of this passage that we start with. He's the vine, I'm the branch. But that's not where Jesus started. He said, I'm the vine, my Father's the vine dresser. Our focus, our attention, our affection, everything needs to be focused toward Jesus. Come on, somebody. Not till verse 5 do we get to you and me. <laughs> I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Whole point, big picture here, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. My joy in you, your joy full. Jesus calls us fundamentally to rest and abide and trust him. 
that can be hard for us, that can be difficult for us to, to grasp and grab a hold of. It can, it can be the easiest thing in the world to argue with mentally, to say, no, no, well, well, he wants me to abide in him, but I also have to. Well, well I'll, I'll trust Jesus in this area, but over here I think I can handle this. Well, I like what Jesus has to say about these areas, but not so much about these areas. So these I'll keep to myself, and these I'll trust Jesus. And what Jesus says is this, you need to completely, utterly, totally abide in me. Any area that's not abiding in me is either going to get plucked out or pruned. So what we've seen as we've, as we've chewed through this passage, and we're quite a ways through it, we only have a few more weeks in this series, what we've seen is that, that the key ingredient here then becomes this idea of faith. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. So you are saved. You, you abiding in the vine has everything to do with His life flowing through you, not your life flowing through you. It has everything to do with you trusting and resting and abiding in Jesus. Because what, church? It's all about Jesus. It's not about your, it's not about your performance. It's about His perfection. You cannot ever hope to perform good enough. Such an uplifting message. Rather, what the gospel teaches us, what the Bible teaches us is this, not try harder, but trust more. Trust so thoroughly that obedience becomes your natural reaction to His Word because you trust Him so fully that you obey Him completely. And so we've seen then, it's all about Jesus, and Jesus is the embodiment, is the picture, is, is, is grace personified. You don't get what you deserve, and you do get what you don't deserve. So what we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 is this, by grace you have been saved. Can I get one really good amen from some Christians in the room, please? For by grace you have been saved, catch this next part though, through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So both the grace and the faith are given to you as a gift. So even, even in your faith, guess who it's all about? Jesus. So you don't even get to, take, you don't even get to like pat yourself on the back for having faith. Even that He gave you. So we're saved by grace through faith. So grace is what is, what is the life, blood, the, the empowerment of the believer. And faith, then we saw, is the channel through which that grace comes to us. So what we've been looking at in this whole area of abiding is how do we grow in our faith? How do, we, how do we allow our faith to be strengthened and to be expanded? Because I don't know about you, but um, let's get a level with you. Every day I need more grace than I needed the day before. <laughs> I thought when I like, first got converted, I'd be like, well, I'll, I'm like doing okay now, but I'll do better later. I seem, to only, I seem to only recognize more and more thoroughly my utter and total dependence on Jesus. I never seem to kind of go, I think I'm past it. <laughs> the further I grow in Him, the more I realize, like, yeah, I, I really need Jesus. Because here's the deal. Whole areas of my life that I thought were great, I realized, like, wow, I really suck at that. <laughs> so I don't know about you. I want to grow in my faith. I want, I want if, if faith... If faith is the channel that brings God's grace to me, I, I want like a backhoe, right? I want to expand my channel to get more grace. Because I don't think personally that the issue is ever his, his reserve of grace. I think it's my ability to receive it. So this led us 
to Hebrews chapter 11, where, where we see the writer of Hebrews unpack for us what a life of faith looks like by looking back into the Old Testament and drawing from those men and women who lived lives of faith. So uh, this is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 through 3. Now I'm doing something a little different, and I've gotten quite a few emails about it, actually, which was I love all of you who emailed me. I'm not going to look anywhere. Because um, a bunch of you were like, oh, okay, uh, Mark, dude, uh, I went out and I bought an ESV Bible because it's what you preach out of, and uh, that's not ESV. I know. Calm down, okay? Um, we're, we're <laughs> this is out of a, a paraphrase. I thought I explained this every week, but apparently, especially last week, I'm not kidding, eight of you like emailed me and text messaged. One guy text messaged in the middle of the message, like, what is that? I'm like, what are you? Uh, don't text me a message. I have way too much ADD for that. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 through 3. This is in a, what's called a paraphrase of the Scripture. So a guy named Eugene Peterson went to the original Hebrew and Greek, and, and he, he didn't translate it. He didn't find like the most perfect word and then translate it, which is what we have in our Bibles. What he did was he kind of went, okay, this is kind of what it's saying. And he tried to get a, a more a robust, kind of wider understanding of it and kind of say it how we would just talk. It's very conversational. And for this passage especially, I liked it. Why did you choose to use it? Because I liked it. Okay? I don't really need any more deep theological reason for that. Um, I just, just as, as a pastoral footnote, I don't recommend using the message paraphrase as your primary Bible because it doesn't have a, a good, solid grasp of the words that are used. But if, if, you're, uh, if you're new to the faith or if you're, you're kind of just beginning out in this whole thing or if you kind of struggle with reading the Bible, I, I'd recommend it as like a secondary. Uh, we use the ESV around here. You're welcome to use any other uh, less good translation of the Bible um, that you like. My wife's glaring at me because she uses the New King James, which I used for years. So really, I'm totally kidding. But uh, I would recommend getting a good Bible. And then if you want to grab a, a, the message, uh, paraphrase is kind of a supplement. Maybe you read something that doesn't really make sense. Kind of go over there and maybe it'll help you a little bit. If not, then text me, just not in the middle of a message. So uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. says, the fundamental fact of existence. See, that's just cool. Sorry. The fundamental fact of existence is that this trust in God, this faith, He's going to unpack what is faith. Is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It's our handle on what we can't see. The act of faith is what distinguished our ancestors. Set them above the crowd. By faith, we see the world called into existence by God's Word. What we see created by what we don't see. Before I go one step further, let's pray and ask Jesus to speak to us. Holy Spirit, we thank You this morning for your presence here with us. Jesus, we thank you for your grace to even allow us to be breathing, let alone your grace that, that, that came down. You came here. And yes, you rescued us. And you give us not only the, the grace but Lord, we, we celebrate and rejoice in the fact that you even give us, you even give us the faith. You, you give us the ability to believe this outrageous, outlandish claim that you, in your performance, in your perfection, paid the price for our utter and total imperfection. God, we, we, we struggle with, with really believing the truth that you are enough. And God, in that same moment of, 
of struggling to believe it, we celebrate and rejoice in its truth. And so God, this day we would come to you and we would, we would ask you for even a, a, a new and a fresh grace to hear your voice in this moment. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to hear what it is you're saying, God, to us as a church, as a people, as individuals. God, that our lives might be more fully conformed to the image of you, Jesus. That the Father might be glorified. That the gospel might be preached. That disciples can be made. The kingdom advanced. The church built. All for your glory. Help us hear your word, receive your word, and obey your word. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're looking through this. We're looking at faith. Here's kind of been our, our working definition of faith, right? Faith is an obedient response to God's word. Faith is an emotion. Faith isn't kind of a hope so. Faith isn't kind of just believing something. Faith is an obedient response to God's Word. So, so when, when Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews tells us that, that all, all of the people of old, all of those, the guys that were on the flannel graph in Sunday school, the guys that you borrowed your dad's you know, bathrobe to be at church on Christmas, all those guys, what set them apart, what made them so, so unique in their generation, what, 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 what positioned them for God to be able to do amazing things through them had nothing to do with them. It had everything to do with the deposit of grace and faith that was given to them. Their obedient response to God's faithful word. That's what we've kind of been using as our definition of faith. And what we've been doing as we've walked through this is we, we've been looking verse by verse through Hebrews chapter 11 to kind of see, okay, what does that look like though? Because I can stand up here and say we should, be a, we should have an obedient response to God's faithful word. And you can all look at me and go, Okay, but what does that look like? And what's amazing about the Scriptures is that God has given us these pictures. The New Testament tells us that everything in the Old Testament was written so that we would be able to understand those things. So we've been looking at Hebrews chapter 11. If you have your Bible, you can go there. Hebrews chapter 11. We've gotten to verse 29. Really excited about this. Hebrews eleven twenty nine Through 31. Three verses. It says, by faith, the people. Can everyone just real fast, I know this is cheesy, but can you just say the people? The people. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because... She had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Three verses. I'm going to try to make three observations here. But before I do that, I need us to see kind of the overarching piece here. The, 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 the big idea here. And I, I want to address something. We've been dealing with faith. And in all transparency and honesty, part of my goal here for us as a church has been to try to clarify what faith really is is and what a life of faith really is because there's a whole movement that has tried tried to apprehend this idea and make it theirs, right? Like like faith somehow is their domain and if you want to learn about faith, you have to go to them and when you go to them, they seem to tell you that if you have faith, you'll have a shiny car and a big house and gold underwear. 
And nothing could be further from what we see in Scripture, right? And so I've been trying as best as I can to do a good job in preaching. Really, any good preaching should be coming against our thinking, offending us, and realigning how we think and how we believe. So, I've been kind of hitting head-on this whole idea of, of faith not being a guarantee of outcome, but rather a call to obedience. See, there's, there's people, it, it sells books and it fills stadiums to, to try to tell you, I have the secret to get God to do what you want Him to. Right? It's, it's great. People, people will flock to that. We, we somehow try to make God into, the, the way I see it most of the time, we either try to make God into a vending machine, right? You pop in your, your prayer and your, your quarter and your nickel and you push A4 and you get what you want. We don't say it like that, but that's what we mean, right? Like, well, if you just believe enough and you say it over and over again, and you, then God just has to do it. The problem with that is it's nowhere found in the Scriptures. It's only found in, in, in radical, weird humanism. That somehow I get to control God. Like, I am the author and perfecter of my faith. And I've kind of, I, I, I see this preached more in the church. This idea of you can get God to do what you want Him to do by somehow manipulating Him through spiritual means. Like if you cry hard enough, then He'll just feel bad enough to do what you want Him to do. And, and that's kind of where I've camped, and I've kind of, just being real, I've kind of beat up on that a little bit. And if that's your camp, I love you. Um, but there's another extreme, and that's the extreme of this. Well, God's just kind of like a slot machine, you know? You put your quarter in, you pull the lever, and maybe he does it, maybe he doesn't, and you don't know. And the problem is this. This area over here is extremely self-centered and egotistic, and so is that. Because neither is true. Well, if neither are true, God's a loving Father. Okay, I don't give my kids everything they ask for, but I also give them things they ask for. And it's important for me that we understand this. That while, can I just be honest with this? While being bitter and jaded, while being pessimistic at that kind of teaching may be kind of hip right now, it's not spiritual in any way, shape, or form. Because the reality is, we just read three verses here that talk about God does amazing, profound, and significant miracles for His people. And just because some group of people have tried to manipulate that should not allow us to abandon the reality that God does the impossible for His people. With man, some things are impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And in this, this passage in Hebrews, it's interesting to me. It's profound and significant to me that what we've been doing is we've been looking at, at individuals, right? We got Abel, we got Enoch, we got Noah, we have, we have Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Jacob, Joseph and Moses. And now all of a sudden, verse 29, we have the shift to, and by faith, the people. Because you see, God has a people. I love you. God is not interested in lone rangers. God is not interested in you becoming the special forces of the church and you somehow being better than everybody else. The Bible tells us this, and, and I'm, there's a, 
I think, a series we may do around Christmas time on this whole idea. A significant idea that is, is consistent throughout the narrative of Scripture is this, that God takes those who are alone, isolated, separated, and puts them in the midst of a family, His family. He's not looking for lone rangers. He's looking for family members. He's inviting you. He's pursuing you to be a part of His family. And so this idea of God doing the impossible is most often, Bible college students are going to like, I'm going to argue with that later. Okay, fine, we can do that later. Most often, the biggest, most stupendous, most out there miracles that God does are tied to His people, not to an individual. Because His miracles are always tied to His purpose, not your pleasure. Now, don't get me wrong, seeing God do crazy impossible stuff gets us really excited, amen? I will never forget the first time I prayed with somebody who was sick, who had a physical bodily ailment, and I prayed for them, and Jesus healed them. It, it was pretty cool. I mean, it, I wasn't like, no, that makes sense. God is sovereign, so. <laughs> Glory be to the Father, and then walk. No, like, I flipped out. I probably stomped my feet, yelled, screamed, hollered, and I don't remember, I probably got kicked out of the service. I mean, it's exciting when God does amazing things. But He doesn't do them for your pleasure. Your pleasure is a byproduct. We bear fruit, and because we bear fruit, we're filled with joy. And we've talked about this. They're not mutually exclusive. God, God is not a God who says, you know, if, if you want to serve me, your life's going to suck. What God says is, look, you already suck at life. You might as well serve me and be filled with my joy. I want us to see this, though. I want us to, to look at this passage with that kind of in mind. That Yes, faith, we've talked about this, we've hammered on this, faith ultimately has an eternal perspective. Those who live by faith are those who say, whether I get delivered or whether I get beheaded, as long as I get Jesus, I really don't care because I get to win. Neener, neener, neener. Right? Like That's the attitude of faith. It has an eternal perspective. But I want us to also equally understand that God's going to do impossible things through you. I, just as a quick example, really fast, really do this. I'm asking you to just look around the room. It's okay. You can do it. It's awkward, but you can do it. None of you were here three years ago. Well, John and Lindsay were here three years ago. Right? Like, like when we started this, it was nothing. And now you're, God does impossible things. This wasn't a marketing campaign. We have no billboards. We don't have bumper stickers. We just love Jesus, preach the gospel, and trust Him to gather people and do the impossible. Other people moved here after that, and lots of people have come and helped. I don't like getting emails. Um, I'm offended. I came early, too. I know. I love you. Three points, three verses, three things I want us to see. Three impossible things God does for His people. Three utterly impossible things. Things that on our own, we cannot do. With, with, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So, what are the three things? First, we see the people who were slaves become free. By faith, by, a, by an obedient response to God's faithful word, Slaves become free. 
Major, major, major important thing here. By trusting Jesus, you can experience freedom. Bible lesson here. Oftentimes in scriptures, we'll see things consistently throughout scripture, things like Egypt. If you read the Old Testament, Egypt's kind of in there a lot. It's important to understand what's God trying to say through us seeing Egypt. If Israel is the picture, is the, is the example of God's people, what's Egypt? Egypt is consistently throughout scripture, uh, is, is a picture, is a type, is a shadow, is, a, is an analogy, you could say, uh, of sin. And what we see is this, it's a, great, it's a great picture. Now, like all pictures, if we push it too far, if all, all, all examples or analogies, if you push them past their intended point, they break and they don't make any more sense, right? For example, Jesus says, I'm the vine, my father's the vine dresser. Well, the vine, dresser, the vine and the vine dresser aren't one, but yet the father and the son are one because it's pushing it past its boundaries. Do we understand that? We jiving together? So what we see is this great picture of what sin really does in our lives in the relationship that God's people, Israel, have with Egypt. It seems attractive at first, right? Joseph goes there and gets made second in command of the whole nation. He's doing pretty good. But his, the people of God stay there, and what happens? They end up in bondage, and they're the slaves now to Egypt instead of the king. You may think that in indulging in sinful behavior, things that God calls us not to do, you're in charge, but ultimately you stay there long enough, that becomes your master. Come on, somebody. You're never in charge. The best you can ever do is get second in charge. Like we read earlier, you become a slave to sin, but glory be to Jesus. Come on, somebody. In Him, you can be free. How did the children of Israel become free? We see this here. It's amazing, and it's a perfect picture of how we become free. We see them flee from sin. We see them leave. They're called to leave. They leave, but here's the problem. Sin can run faster than you. Fleeing will only get you so far. Let me put it another way. Behavior modification only works for so long. God is not interested in your behavior modification and you learning how to be a better person. Right? That's Scientology. Okay? That's not Christianity. That's not Bible-based gospel doctrine. What God is interested in is not you becoming a better person. God is interested in His people being transformed ever more into the image of Jesus. Jesus wasn't a good person. One of my, one of my statements I made a ton when I was a youth pastor, was I wasn't interested in growing a youth ministry full of good kids. I wanted godly kids. Good kids don't cuss, smoke, or chew, or run around with people who do. Godly kids carry the gospel to third world nations, abandon everything in their life, and see Jesus glorified. I'd rather have a church filled with godly people than good people. What we see here, though, is that these slaves to Egypt, like we were slaves to sin, become free. They flee the nation. They get called out by God. God says, come out of that nation, just like he calls us to get out of the sin that so easily ensnares us to come out. He calls us to obedience, and they run away. But what happens? Egyptians are faster, sin is faster, and they run into a barrier. And what I love, i got to read this again. Verse 29. It says, by faith, the people crossed what? The Red Sea. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. The same way that the, that the, the Israelites, the people of God here, got freedom from their sin is the same way you and I are going to get freedom from our sin. Oh, an amazing, unstoppable, unending sea of red. 
It is only the blood of Jesus that is going to free you from your sin. Trying harder won't work. Trust me. No, I read a book. You put a rubber band around your wrist, and every time you do something bad, you snap yourself. <laughs> That's how I quit smoking. I chewed sunflower seeds for five years nonstop. That's behavior modification. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about genuinely being transformed. They went from being slaves on this side of the Red Sea to being free on this side. I'm not really interested, I'm just leveling with you here, on just kind of somehow learning to, learning to manage slash hide my sin. Christianity is not about you hiding your sin better. Well, I used to talk about my sin, now I just don't, and it seems like I'm free. Why? Because I hang out with Christians and they judge me. No, it's about confessing our sin. It's about, it's about being washed in the blood of Jesus to find freedom from our sin. It's about being free. Possible things God does for His people, He makes slaves free. Amen? The sea, I also I have to throw, I'm sorry, I just have to throw this out. The sea also represents baptism. And I, I want to address this because I think a lot of us probably have heard the understanding, the doctrine, the teaching that, well, baptism is just a symbol. And I, I understand what people are trying to do there. Because you don't have to be baptized to be saved. However, I think we do a disservice to ourselves and to the Scriptures when we say baptism is just a symbol. Because baptism is something we are called to as believers. And there's a powerful, meaningful experience that happens when you were baptized. And we see elsewhere in Scripture that this, this journey that the people of God went on through the Red Sea is meant to be a picture of baptism. If you have not been baptized, I'm going to beg you, call you to be baptized. If you need to be baptized, we gave you a connection card when you walked in. Right on the back of it, say, I need to be baptized. And we'll find a church that believes in baptism and let you know. We'll do some baptism. We baptize people around here, okay? And we'll dunk you under. We will hold you there till we believe you will not sin anymore. <laughs> he makes slaves free. So this passage, these three verses, I find it funny. Three verses, they cover 40 years of history. So I'm going to do my best to preach for 40 years. For, no, to, uh, to, to try to help us catch up here. So they, they, they're slaves. They're in Egypt. Through the Red Sea, through the blood of Jesus, we're made free. What happens is this, that they then wander the desert for 40 years. Wish I could go into this. Wish I could pull this more. I don't have time. Read the passage. Read the, the, the stories in the Old Testament. Pray. Study the Scriptures. They wander in the desert until it's time for God, God's time for them to go into the promised land. As they go into the promised land, there is an obstacle. There's a promised land full of obstacles, but ultimately, first one here we have, this city, Jericho. This fortified city. They hear about God and all of His power in his, in, that is at work for His people, and they freak out, and they shut their city up. They have huge walls. They close their city up so that the children of Israel can't get in. So here... Here the children of Israel are trying to walk in obedience, trying to walk in freedom, right? And yet there's these obstacles they can't get over. What God does is this. He makes slaves free. Impossible becomes possible. You were a slave. 
now you're free. Next, he takes wanderers and makes them those who take cities. Can I just put it bluntly? You were not redeemed. You did not experience conversion so that you can warm a chair in a church. You were converted so you can give your money so I can win a city. Thank you for laughing. People are like, wait, what? Hold on a minute. You were converted. I just need to make sure y'all were listening, okay? We'll edit that out of the podcast. Because that'll just get pulled and that'll get put up online. Like, see, I knew that church was all about that. I'm going to be good, I promise. You were converted. You were brought into the family of God to be a part of God's work. Jesus said this, I must be about my Father's work. You, as a child, as a son of God, must be about the Father's work. You were redeemed, ransomed, brought into the family of God so you could serve his purposes. And guess what? There are impossible things that will stand before you, and God is more committed to them being one than you are. The fulfillment of the purposes of God are not going to be fulfilled. I love you. They're not going to be fulfilled because you're smart enough, wise enough, strong enough, and doggone it, people like you. That's not going to be the thing that wins the loss to Jesus. It is only by a sovereign act of God's grace that those who are far from God become close to Jesus. It is only when God unlocks our hearts that we recognize our sinfulness and His righteousness and our need for His grace. If this city is going to be won, it is not going to be won by those who just wander aimlessly. We have to find a purpose. And guess what? You don't get to pick it, and I don't get to pick it. The senior pastor gets to pick it, and the senior pastor of this house is Jesus. I thought you were the senior pastor. Nope, my wife told me I wasn't. (laughs) I'll hear about that later. (laughs) He takes wanderers makes them people who take cities. Your freedom isn't just about your freedom. Your freedom is about being positioned. You put it this way, and, and I hope you're mature enough to understand this, being qualified because of His work and His grace in your life to be used to bring freedom not just to yourself, but to those God puts in your path. We don't exist as a church just to have Sunday morning services. Sunday morning services exist to equip us to go out and to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples, to advance the kingdom, and to build the church. Three impossible things. Slaves become free. Second, wanderers become those that win a city because we're obedient to God. They didn't win the city because they came up with a good military strategy. We're not going to win this city to Jesus. We're not going to proclaim the gospel to all in the city because we somehow came up with a good plan for it. We're going to be obedient to what Jesus calls us to, which is simply this, to preach the gospel. That's it. And to trust him fully and completely for the results. They walked around the city. That's what they did. Six of you are like, we need to get together and walk around the city. No, it's not the point. People have written books about it, but that's not the point. The point is not to try to get you to wander around a city. The point is for you to be obedient to what God has called you to, no matter how ridiculous it seems. And the Scripture tells us plainly that the proclamation of the Gospel is foolishness. 
It's cr- it is absolutely crazy to think that we can preach the gospel, tell people that they suck at life, Jesus doesn't, they need to repent it thinking that they don't suck at life and trust Jesus, and that that is somehow going to change the city. But it will. It's the only thing that will. So God lets his people, he takes his people from slavery to freedom. He takes his people from wandering and makes them into city winners. And if you're like me at this point, you're going, that's really good for God's people, but what about me? I'm so thankful there's three verses here. I'm so happy that there's three verses. You say, like, look, that's cool, that's great, and, and I'm sure the church can get excited about that, but you don't understand who I am, you don't understand my past, and therefore you can't understand that all of that is great, but doesn't apply to me. Because I'm not an idiot, too much. Um, I am fully aware that under the sound of my voice, whether here or through the reach of our podcast, that, that there are those who are God's people hearing my voice and those who are not yet God's people. And if you heard all of this, all you're hearing is great. God does great stuff for His people, but what about me? And I'm so thankful there's another verse. By faith, Rahab. By faith, Rahab, the good, kind little schoolgirl who was just hoping that people... No, by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Okay, so Rahab is completely and utterly without hope. I'm just going to be real with you. As far as in real life, in, in the story of it happened, again, I want us to make sure, quick side note, pastoral little have to say this. Yes, it's a, we learn from it. Yes, we, it was given to us. The, the Old Testament, these stories were given to us so that we can understand God and the way that he works and the life of faith and the, the narrative of Scripture and his working throughout history, but that does not mean that they did not happen. I firmly, wholeheartedly believe that what's written in the Bible you know, actually happened. I don't think God had to make it up. So they really did this. Rahab was a real person who, who, catch this please, she lived in a horrible, corrupt city. Okay, she lived in Vegas, all right? She, all my friends at Pastor in Vegas are going to yell at me now. Oh, like my city is more sinful than yours? Sort of. Um, <laughs> we don't have to tell people not to talk about what happens in Spokane when they go home. Um, <laughs> By the way, herpes goes with you either way. Um, And uh, it's the truth. What we see here is this. She lives in a city that is utterly, totally, completely corrupted by sin. Right? So much so that God's like, it's just knock it down. That's where she lives. Those are her people. That's her identity. That's who she is. Not only that, But not only does she live there and participate in the sinfulness that's there, she's a proponent of it. She's a promoter. She's a hooker. Okay, so it's not like, well, I live in I live in Los Angeles, or I live in I live in Vegas, but I'm a school teacher. No, she's just a straight up hooker. That's her job. So she's she's without hope here. I think the reason why God includes this is this look, I don't care how hopeless you think your situation is. I don't care what what picture you have of the condemnation that you think you ought to sit under. My Bible tells me that in Christ there is therefore now no condemnation. God does all this great stuff for His people and here's the, the part that to me is even the most amazing. You, through Christ, can be one of His people. Slaves become free. Wanderers become those that win cities. 
those that are not God's people become God's people. I have to read another verse. I have, we, ha- we have to see this, if I can find it, because I love technology. Don't care. Let's just, we're going to do this old school. Bible. Get your Bible out. <laughs> Don't know if I put a slide in there. This is uh, Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. Have to see this. Luke 5, verse 31. I'm going to let you get there. Also, I'm using this time to see if I did put it in the slides. I didn't. Luke chapter 5, verse 31. This is Jesus talking. I'm not going to give you the backstory. I don't have time. I'm already going over. Luke chapter 5, verse 31. And Jesus answered them. I have to read verse 30. I'm sorry. And the Pharisees, I'm not giving you the backstory. I just can't. Yeah, I have to read verse 39 or 29. Uh, and Levi made a great feast in his house. So Jesus comes and calls him to follow him. This Levi is the same guy that Math is Matthew. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at tables with them. I love that tax collectors is nothing a pastor ever has to explain. Right? Like if I tell it's like Pharisees, you're like, what's a Pharisee? And I have to explain that. If I'm like a tax collector, you're like, nope, get it. Totally understand. They suck. Um, <laughs> verse 30, and the Pharisees, which are a religious group of, of people, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 31, Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Please hear this, verse 32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you think church is for perfect people, look around. (laughs) The church is not meant for those who are perfect. The church is not meant for those who've figured it out. The church is not meant for fake, phony people who somehow think that they 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 can act their way into the kingdom. The church is for those who Jesus has called to repent. The church is for prostitutes and sinners, for the lost, for those far away to repent. Repent means this, to admit that the way that you think and therefore the way that you act is wrong and the way that Jesus thinks and the way that Jesus calls us to act is right. And to beg him to transform the way you think so that you can change the way you live. That is repentance and that is what we are called to. We are called fundamentally to be God's people and as we become God's people, guess what? Slaves, become free. Those that wander become those that win cities so that more people who are far from Jesus might go from being a slave to being free. That being in their freedom, they might win those who are far off so that slaves can become free. Are you seeing how this works? I don't care what your past is. What I care about is this. Are you hearing Jesus call you to himself. If you are, repent. I didn't say pick Jesus. That's not the gospel. The gospel isn't, well, I think my life is bad this way and I heard it'd be better with Jesus, so 
I guess I'll get Jesus on the side of my life and it'll make my dish better. Jesus is not a side dish. Jesus, Jesus isn't the main dish. Jesus is everything. You repent. You're here this morning and you're hearing me and you were the one that was sitting there thinking and saying, I, I, I think it's great that God makes slaves free. I think it's great that God makes wanderers into city winners, but only if there is people and I'm not his people. My call to you this morning is if you are hearing my voice and something is stirring within you, it is my firmly held conviction that is the key of the gospel going into your heart and trying to unlock the hard, dead heart that you have that Jesus might pull it out of your chest and give you a new one. And the pathway to that is repentance, not picking Jesus. I don't care whether you've picked Jesus in the past. I care about whether or not you are willing to repent of your sin and be converted into something new, going from death to life, the Scripture tells us. Stand to our feet. Here's where I want to end for us. It's where I'd like to land this whole thing. Whether it's your sin, whether it's some obstacle in your life, whether it's your past, my prayer for us as a house this morning, and what I want to call us to respond to is this, to never limit your obedient response to our limitless God. I don't care what, look, can I just level with you? If Jesus could save somebody as broken, busted, and disgusted as me, He can do anything. If Jesus can bring us from death to life, how dare we throw obstacles in His way as excuses to not obey Him? And whether that obedience for you is the initial obedience of repentance, confessing that you are wrong and He is right, calling for His grace to be applied to you, begging Him for the gift of faith to trust that what He says is true, or whether there's some individual thing in your life that Jesus has been calling you to that you need to just give up because guess what? He always wins at tug-of-war. You will lose I want to call us as a church as a people to not put a lid on our obedience to a limitless God abandon those things that limit him and be willing to obey regardless of what he calls us to I'm going to pray we're going to respond, and I'm going to open this up to respond as you feel led. We partake in communion each, each week as we gather together, as we feel the Scriptures call us to. We take by a method known as antiquation. It's an ancient method of taking a piece of bread and dipping it in the cup. And if you're here and you've experienced that repentance, or if you are experiencing that repentance this morning, this table is open to you. If not, we would ask you to abstain from this until such moment that you have come to that faith because this is something meaningful. It is, it is a picture, it is a reminder of the broken body and the shed blood which enable us to be saved. It's the reminder of His broken body and His blood shed for us. It is the Red Sea. We would also call us to respond in worship, to exalt, to praise, to glorify Jesus. 
calls to respond in repentance. Repentance isn't about some exterior thing. It's an interior. It's an internal thing, but it produces quite a powerful external result. And if you need to find space in this room, we would invite you to, whether that's in your seat, whether it's in an altar, whether it's at the back, to get with Jesus and do some work and allow Him to open up your heart and to transform your thinking. His ways and His thoughts are higher than ours. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, we thank You for Your working, Your stirring this morning. Thank you for your grace and the faith to trust in that grace. Lord, I ask this morning that for those that are here that are struggling in obedience, whether for the first time in repentance or whether, God, they know they're your child, but maybe there's an area of sin that they don't want to relinquish to you. God, would you bring about repentance in that area. God, have your way and do your work in us this day. Jesus, be glorified.